So we are looking at John's passion account, not looking at all the details. So this morning we were considering that gospel hope, Jesus comforting Martha, Lazarus's brother who had died with the words, I am the resurrection and the life, and he raised Lazarus from death. And now in chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus is invited to a thank you meal for what he did to Lazarus. So he returns to Bethany, and what a fellowship meal this is. Wouldn't you have liked to have been part of it? To begin with, there was Lazarus. It wasn't held in the home of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. It was held in the house of one Simon the leper. And Lazarus was there. I think that would have been amazing, having fellowship with a man that had just come back from the dead. Maybe he still had some of the grave clothes on him. And then there is Martha there. And Martha is doing here what she is best at. Andy's been talking about gifts in the church. Well, here was a believer who was gifted at serving. Let us not depreciate the Marthas in our midst. I think Martha had learned a lesson here, hadn't she? The last time she served Jesus, she was getting all het up because Mary wasn't helping her. Mary was just sitting at the feet of Jesus, taking in all his teaching. And Martha was getting stressed about that. But look at Martha here. All we're told is that Martha served and she was doing it selflessly. She wasn't judging Mary for not doing the same as she was. Now, aren't we in danger, often, of judging one another because we are not all doing the same thing? I remember once I was in a nationalised Edward evangelistic team and most of us on the team were going around the field, the mice of the East Edward, handing out tracts. That, that was what most of us were doing. But one person on the team, he just wasn't good at doing that but he was brilliant at serving in the cafe that we had in the tents and so he was a Martha so we always need Marthas there wouldn't have been a meal if there wasn't a Martha to serve uh, one of the commentators talked about a house that had above the kitchen sink a sign saying Divine service held here three times a day. <laughs> so think of your work, whether it's at school, uni, or the workplace or the home, as divine service. We mustn't think that some things are less spiritual than others. We're doing everything to the Lord. So there's Martha. There's the other disciples here. They're not mentioned by John, but they are mentioned in the other accounts. And of course, there is what we're going to look at tonight, Mary 
and what Mary does. Now, there is no doubt that Mary was a spiritual woman. And what she does in this meal is beautiful. That's what I want to concentrate on this evening, really. The beauty of Mary's sacrifice. She takes a box of spikenard. This is uh, nard, which comes from the Himalayas. Very expensive. It was worth one year's salary. And she breaks it over the head of Jesus. That's what some of the Gospels say. But John gives more details. And also she wipes his feet with this oil. There is one year's salary going. And some of the disciples are not happy. The waste, the money could have been given to the poor. And Jesus says, you always will have the poor with you. That doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't help the poor. Indeed, we're probably slower doing that. But what the Lord is saying here is there's something even more important than that. And he's saying, what Mary's doing here is beautiful. It doesn't say that in John, but in Mark and Matthew, it says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. A beautiful thing. And all I want us to do before we come to communion is ask, what's so beautiful about this act of service? What is so beautiful? And may we be beautiful in our serving of the Lord, whether we're Martha's or Mary, it doesn't matter, but there should be a beauty about us. Let me just give you a number of reasons. I don't want to be too long. The first reason I think there's beauty here is that it's open, it's open. What do I mean by that? She's not doing something in secret here. If you read the account chronologically, you will find that what we have here is in the middle of the scheming of the religious leaders. After Jesus raised Lazarus from death, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had finally decided that they'd had enough of this carpenter son from Nazareth and that they were going to do away with him. They were actually plotting in secret behind the scenes to kill Jesus Christ. So that's one end. The other end of what we have here, as we had in our reading, is Judas Iscariot. Judas is so incensed by the seeming waste of what Mary is doing here that Judas now has had enough of Jesus Christ. And Judas is the catalyst that goes to the religious leaders and they finally plot how they are going to get rid of the Saviour. So all of that is happening behind the scenes. It's happening in an underhand way. But what Mary is doing is out in the open. There's no politics here. She's just simply overflowing with love to her Saviour. And she does not care what it looks like. That's not politics, is it? Uh, what you got with politicians? I'm sure it's not true of every politician. 
But what you tend to have in politics is posturing and lobbying and making sure that you appear uh, in the right way. Uh, did you hear in the news about uh, William and Kate's visit uh, to uh, the Caribbean and how they postured themselves unwisely and all they were doing were shaking hands with people behind the fence. But that looked as if they were uh, looking down upon those people. That, that's just politics, isn't it? Image. Christian service is not political. We're out in the open, my friends. We're to be transparent. And there's nothing to be ashamed of in serving Jesus Christ. A little later in this chapter, Jesus puts it very plainly. He says, I am the light of the world. Verse 35, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. May we become sons and daughters of light. Maybe this is where we have got it wrong these last few years. We haven't been walking in the light as we should. We have the light of the world in Jesus Christ. Thy word is a light unto my feet. May we be open. There is something beautiful, I think, about a church that is transparent, not politics, which is the art of the possible, but real Christianity which is the art of the impossible. That, that's the first thing that makes this beautiful. And then there is something else here. Look at what she does. Where is she? Yes, she opened the box over Jesus' head, but where is she? She is bowing at his feet. The humility of Mary's service makes it beautiful. Where's the best place for you and I to be? On our knees. On our knees. It was good to see you, Andy, in the kitchen the other day, washing the dishes. There's a church in West Wales, and it has as one of its elders the former director of education of that county. And he's often found in the kitchen, in the cafe of that church washing the dishes. Isn't that lovely? Beautiful, beautiful. Look at what Mary is doing. She's at the feet of Jesus. She considers it her greatest delight to take the lowest place, unlike the religious leaders who were fighting over the higher seats. She is at the feet of Jesus, and she is just awed to be there. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love to me. And then she does something else. She unbraids her hair. Uh, verse 3. 
Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. So she unbraided it. For a Hebrew woman to do that was unthinkable. It really was scandalous. And yet Mary doesn't care. She really is humble here. Do you know what humility is? We tend to think, don't we, that humility is thinking how humble I am. Uriah Heep. Charles Dickens. How humble I am. But that's not humility. You can be as proud as the devil when you are spiritually proud. True humility is self-forgetfulness because you're taken up with Jesus Christ. And that, I think, is what Mary is doing here. She really is not concerned anymore about what people round about her are thinking about what she's doing. What did Augustine say, Augustine of Hippo? Do you know what he said? What are the three characteristics of a Christian? Do you know the answer? The first is humility. What's the second? Humility. What's the third? You've guessed it. Humility. May he increase and I decrease. How much church trouble would be avoided if we were more humble? So Mary here is taking the humblest part, not in a selfish way, but because she's so taken up by Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, that made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Somebody asked Whitfield, George Whitfield, the 18th century evangelist, Whitfield, why don't you form a denomination like the Wesley brothers? You, you could secure the work for the future. And all Whitfield said was, let the name of Whitfield perish. Not interested. If Christ is glorified by the Wesleys, praise be to his name. Let the name of Heath perish. If Christ is glorified in other places, all we want is to see Christ lifted. Be thou exalted, O God, even if it's at our expense. Humility. There's a beauty, isn't there, in true humility. And then the sacrifice here. Sacrifice. I've already mentioned that here was a year's wages. And <laughs> the critics just saw that going down. Not down the drain, <laughs> but down Jesus's hair, down his beard. Does that remind you of Psalm 133? Down to his feet. 
it looks wasteful. In a sense, Judas Iscariot was half right. It would have been economically better to have sold that box and given the proceeds to the poor. But what has money got to do with it when it comes to Jesus Christ? You know, there are some things that are priceless. They may not mean anything to you, but to the person, something may be priceless. I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, It might be uh, some belonging uh, that means something to you on a personal level. It's not worth that much financially, but to you, it's the most priceless possession that you have. And what is Jesus Christ compared to all the world? Do you know that you have something priceless in your possession? Do you know that your soul is priceless? What profits a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This eternal, this spirit part of me, that's priceless. That's what drove William Carey, a geography teacher, to go to India as a missionary. And it wasn't a done thing in those days. And he was even put off by godly Reformed men. But Carey had a burden for people's souls. He would be giving a geography lesson and he'd be showing the children the different countries of the world. And as he would be coming to parts of the world that hadn't heard the gospel, he would break down in tears. Oh, Saviour, teach me the value of a soul. Can you put a price To the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed on the cross? I can't. It's priceless. One drop of that blood has got enough efficacy in it to wash away your sin. My friends, we've got to be good stewards. We've got to be. Proverbs teaches us that. But in another sense... We're dealing with things in the service of Christ that are beyond economic worth. There is such a thing as spiritual economics, isn't there? But when you think of some of these disciples, uh, think of the first martyr, Stephen. You're tempted to think sometimes, what a waste of a life. A life cut short at a young age. And yet... Stephen's martyrdom, like this anointing of Jesus Christ, it looked as if his life was just being poured out uh, cheaply, but that pouring out was so costly, wasn't it? We've been looking at Samson in the Bible study, and in his death, Samson destroyed more of the enemy than in his entire life. I think Stephen in his martyrdom bore a more powerful testimony to the gospel than in all of his life as an evangelist. You read of some of the missionaries. Have you read of uh, some of the missionaries that went to South America? I can't remember the name of the chap, but one man went to Tierra del Fuego on the tip of Argentina and 
they, they didn't reach anybody. They, they basically died. It looks like a waste. But I'm sure in God's plan, that was priceless. Priceless. So the sacrifice is beautiful. Are you sacrificing something to the Lord? When Martin Lloyd-Jones first went to Sandfields, he left a lucrative career in Harley Street as a doctor. And people thought he'd lost his mind or he was going to join the communists or something. Others wrote patronizingly what great a sacrifice he was making. Lloyd-Jones, like Mary, thought, I'm not really sacrificing anything. It's a great privilege to be able to be an ambassador for King Jesus. We'll be singing shortly, Forbidded Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Jesus hints at that here, doesn't he? What does he say to the critics? Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. I think Mary is looking to the death of Jesus. Hadn't he been teaching them about his forthcoming death and resurrection? I think what really got Mary's spiritual juices going was the fact that her Lord was going to die. Now, I can't be certain there, but I'm quite sure that unlike some of the disciples, she had her focus on the cross. Now, you may say to me, but there's nothing beautiful about Golgotha. Even the name uh, hits you hard, doesn't it? What is beautiful about a man condemned as a criminal? What is beautiful about somebody hanging naked? That's how Jesus was crucified, naked on the cross. What's so beautiful about those hands nailed so that the blood was flowing about the head that's crowned with thorns so that the blood was again coming down his brow. What's so beautiful about that sacrifice? Oh, if you see it like Mary saw it with the eye of faith, it is the most beautiful sight in the whole universe. Because it was on that cross that our salvation, what God had planned before the world began, was finally executed. That's why Paul could say, which is what Isaac Watts' hymn is based on, forbid it, Lord, that I should glory, save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. Are we glorying in the cross? Do we see whatever we do to the Lord, not as a sacrifice? He was the sacrifice. All we are doing is responding in thanksgiving. Andy looked at these verses a few weeks ago in the Bible study because of the mercies of God, the cross, present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. Do you see something beautiful in Christian service where the world sees a waste? 
But you see something. Here is a person just pouring their life as a living sacrifice to Christ. Rabbi Duncan, the 19th century Scottish theologian, he often wondered, Lord, some of those early church fathers, they were a bit dodge, weren't they, in their theology? They were. They are. Have you read about Polycarp? He had some strange views. And he just wondered, Lord, why did you use them so much? Why were they so blessed? And then Rabbi Duncan saw the reason. They burned well. They burned well. Do we burn well? Do we burn well? And then we must hurry on to my last point is there's a spontaneity here, isn't there? There's a spontaneity. It's beautiful, not just because it's in the open, not just because it's true humility, not just because it's sacrificial, but it's spontaneous, spontaneous. Weren't you moved in the singing of that third hymn, that last stanza? I didn't plan for that to be sung three times. In Welsh-speaking circles, we sometimes do that. But it was spontaneous, wasn't it? Spontaneity. If she would have asked permission of the disciples before doing what she did, I don't think she would have been given it. They would have taken their, well, they wouldn't have had calculators in those days. They would have taken their abacuses out and said, we can't afford that. We can't. But she didn't. Why? Because her heart was bursting. And when you feel like bursting in worship to God, you've just got to just praise him. No, praise him. Wasn't the psalmist spontaneous when he said, praise the Lord, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that in me is. Spontaneity. Judas Iscariot. Critical. He sounds half right. Yes, it would have made more economic sense to have sold that and to give the proceedings to the poor. But Judas's heart was wrong. And we know uh, what the others didn't know, that Judas was in his heart a thief. He was the treasurer. Nothing wrong with being the treasurer. But Judas had his hand in the bag. It's possible for people to be not that knowledgeable in terms of their understanding of the truth, but for their hearts to be right. Mary's heart was full to overflowing, and so she can't help doing what she does here. Oh, don't we need full hearts when we come to God's house? Don't we need full hearts when we meet in fellowship with one another? The psalmist said, my heart is indicting a good matter cannot help but talk about the Lord, cannot help but share about his works and his faithfulness. I, I don't think Judas's criticism really affected Mary. Perfect love casts out fear. I, I just like her spontaneity, don't you? 
a very intelligent man called Gresham Machen. He was a lecturer in Westminster, one of the founders, I think, of Westminster Seminary. He explained it in this way. The slightest calculation might have led the woman to act differently. She didn't plan for this. Uh, she didn't kind of reason to see, is it going to be worth it? Isn't it better to do that instead? The slightest calculation might have led the woman to act differently. She did not calculate at all. All that she saw was Jesus. The whole rest of the world was forgotten, including the disciples. There was her dear Savior and Lord, and her heart was full of overflowing love. What place was there for exact calculations as to the best use of funds? What place for uh, anything like that? She was just full of gratitude uh, for what he was about to do. Little did she care for the cold criticism of Judas. Broken was the flask and the room filled with the lavish fragrance of the ointment. Calculation and efficiency were conquered by the might of love. May the power of Christ's love cause calculation, as it were, to recede. Away with the calculators. When the love of Jesus Christ is shared abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's what this anointing is prefiguring. The oil of the Spirit. Give me oil in my lamp, Lord. That's what I want. I know the gospel. Praise God. We are in a sound gospel church. I wouldn't want it any other way. But give us oil, Lord. The oil of gladness. The oil of the Holy Spirit. Restore again the joy of thy salvation. Don't you want to be overflowing with that joy so that you're about to burst? In um, the Welsh Conference once, Gareth Davis was speaking to us and he was telling us about the response in the meeting. Uh, because in Welsh-speaking circles, it's more common for people to say something, amen or glory or something like that. And Gareth Davis said this. I found this very helpful. He said, we don't want to do that in a forced way. I, I've preached in some Welsh chapels where there's been hardly any gospel and people have said amens in the most peculiar places. <laughs> he said, Gareth, I don't want to do it in a forced way, but if I feel like bursting, I say amen. Isn't that good? Spontaneity, spontaneity. Holy Spirit, spontaneity. Isn't there something aromatic about this? Imagine the room here. It's not just Mary that can be seen uh, doing beautiful service to the Saviour, but the smell, the aroma of the nard. I had some nard given to me in India. I think it was nard. Whenever you go to a church, a new church in India, uh, instead of welcoming you in the announcements as we do, and there's nothing wrong with that, they give you a garland of flowers or something. And sometimes there is, well, there's some spice there. And I think it's something like nard. And it just smells lush. And it lasts for months and months. Oh, just think of the aroma 
that would have been left in this room. Not just when Mary was doing this, but for months afterwards, the room would have smelt of the nard. Don't believers who do beautiful, Holy Spirit-led service to the Lord, don't they leave that aroma of Christ? Don't they? It's interesting how many Marys there have been in some of our lives. We, we think of Meyer, don't we? Meyer Bala. What an aroma for Christ. Mary Bala. Auntie Meyer in Patagonia. Well, I've got to come to a conclusion. But do we want to do something for thee, Lord? Something beautiful. Don't think of it as going overseas onto the mission field. That might be what the Lord is calling you to do. Even Martha is doing something beautiful. May we, because of what Christ has done for us, what price can be put on that cross? It's priceless. Because he did that for me. May I count it as nothing to pour my heart and my life with the gifts he's given me as a living sacrifice to him. May we as a church be on fire in that sense. May we not think that's a wasted life, but in the light of eternity, we will see it as the most beautiful, the most beautiful thing uh, for his namesake. Let's sing before we come to the Lord's table. There's no clock there, so I don't know how the time is going. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, may we be enabled now as we come to the Lord's table to focus, even to survey uh, that wondrous cross, even till tears come uh, from our eyes as Mary was weeping.